All right. Well, if you have been here, you have been uh, going through the book of Hebrews with us in this um, app. You can sign up for the next um, series to, to go. Next week will actually conclude. Though as you read the book, chapter 12, which is what we're going to look at today, kind of concludes the theology of it. And then there's kind of some personal remarks that take place in chapter 13, which will be next week, right? So as we go through this, and, uh, and really this chapter is, is, is hallmarked by this idea of this race, this running theme that goes throughout pretty much the whole of the chapter. And you see, when we leave off from chapter 11 and come into chapter 12, chapter 11 had all those people, right? It talked about the life of, of, um, of Abraham and Isaac and Moses and, and all the people that he details. And then he turns this corner that we're going to turn the corner today, and it switches. They're no longer the focus that we're looking at. It's more so that they're the cheerleaders on the sidelines of the race, focusing on us as we run. Because they've already run their race. The people of Hebrews that were receiving this letter were running their race at the time. And as we read it, we're running our race now. And that's the backdrop and turning the corner from last week into this week. And this idea of running the race of faith. And I believe uh, Jeff, before he went to Mexico, he downloaded the uh, verses in, uh, in version, So you should be able to find those there. And again, you can go online and, down, and uh, join the app for next week. Um, but we're going to jump into this. This chapter 12 of Hebrews is one of my favorite. You see, it, it culminates with the themes that we kind of kicked off with way back when, that, that who is Jesus and what did he do, right? The two big words, Christology of who is Jesus and soteriology, which is the, the understanding of the study of salvation. And that's what he did. And then this whole book is trying to encourage those who are on the fence about going back to their Jewish roots and their Jewish faith. And this writer is, is urging them on to stay in the race. Answering this underlying question, well, how can we approach God? We approach him because of the person of Jesus and what he did that we could not do. And that's what we've been studying this whole time. Is running the race with endurance. And this idea of endurance leads us to a lifelong race. It's not a sprint. And in some regards, it's not even a marathon, if you will. It's an ultra marathon. And that's what we're called to run, this race of our life. So we're going to run through um, some parts faster than others, this whole chapter. But there's three things we should see in here. One is that, keeping with the greater theme, we have a greater running example, a greater pace setter, if you will, and his name is Jesus. And this chapter speaks to that. There's a greater mountain experience that we're going to look at between the Old Testament and what's instilling the New Testament and an unshakable kingdom, which is our inheritance. It starts out with this. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The race marked out for us. There's some instruction here. There are those people that were the focal point last chapter are now on the sidelines. Maybe you can recall some races and you hear that. People ringing the bell as you run by, and certainly in bike races for sure. But as you're running, they're, they're, they're cheering you on. Go! And oftentimes they don't know your name, so they're maybe looking at your bib. And they're, go, you know, 718, go, 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 right? 
That's what's taking place. They're now spurring us on in the race that we are in. And the writer gives some examples. He says, as you run this race, you got to travel light. Right? Don't, don't be hindered down by these encumbering things that we aren't meant to carry in the race. And I, I can guarantee you that the, even just body weight over an ultra distance, it makes a big difference if I'm carrying five extra pounds or I'm down to my racing weight times 55K or whatever distance I'm running. It wears you out over and over. And carrying things in our lives that we aren't meant to carry pull us off track. And then he says, in the sin that so easily entangles, it's, it's this idea of, of, of encumbering us, of holding us, that we're not able to run as efficiently and effectively and righteously as we should. We're not to embrace sin. We're to, to let that go. And so that's what he's talking about here. And then this idea of the perseverance of the race marked out for us. I have a friend who I actually may even see this afternoon. He always jokes, he goes, you know, these crazy runs that you do, you know, you decided to do this. Like, nobody made you do this, right? But I think the race of life, right, we chose. We chose to follow Jesus, and with that comes a course that's marked out for us that we don't get to dictate. The choice we have is which course are we going to run. And once that's decided— we're on the way. And while we're running that, there are difficult times we come unto. This is a race that I did in Bozeman, Montana, if you're able to see that. It follows the ridge line all the way as far as you can see. Like 8,000 feet of elevation gain. I'm running at 10,000 feet most of the time with, um, you know, your ears get plugged when you're, yeah, that whole thing. Um, for 20 plus miles. And that was, that was the course that was marked out for me. Sometimes I even wondered, is there even a trail there? Like, that's where you're running all the way. And sometimes that's like my life. Right? There are circumstances that come up that I can't quit. Where, where are you going to go? Right? My wife, at one point, she hiked up to this, uh, to an aid station, right? And it took me forever to get there. And she's calling me like, where are you? I'm like, stop calling me. I'm working hard here. Right? But I'm trying to get there, right? But there was no shortcuts. There was no way off. There's no way out, except for a helicopter. You don't want that. You don't want that option. Right? But this is like life. And, and I think about that, and what came to my mind when I was thinking about this was my sophomore year in high school. Right? I had made a decision to follow Jesus, and I was on that path. Many of my friends hadn't. And for whatever reason, sophomore year in high school was the year that somehow we found drugs. They found drugs. I saw them doing drugs. I didn't want to participate. And so I, in my non-participation, they just excommunicated me. All the kids I grew up with left utterly alone in a high school that was my first year there. And that year was the most, one of the most depressing years of my life because I struggled with abandonment. I struggled with being loved, and these were the friends that I was loving as family, and they ditched me. It was part of the race that was marked out for me that would make a huge difference in my life. I wouldn't have chosen that. I would have chosen for them to see a positive influence of me in them and make a better choice. But rejection, being left alone, turned aside, 
It was the race that was, that was the course marked out for me with obstacles that they had to be overcome. And the writer goes on. says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer or author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And if you remember back from chapter 1 when I, when I was doing the intro, like that's how this started out in the book. He said that Jesus came, and then when he, he, he made reparations for sin, then he was resurrected and, and seated at the right hand of the Father. This idea of victory. Jesus ran the race before us so we know what it looks like. And that's what he's saying here, that we keep our eyes fixed on him and not the obstacles. And what did he do? He endured, right? Perseverance, this idea of ultra running in his life, the cross. That was meant to be a, a thing of shame. He actually made a mockery of the shame of their system by what he accomplished on that cross. And that's what he's saying here. And then when he was done and resurrected, and he went up and he took the victor's seat on the podium. And the writer's saying, when you get a little tired and weary, you take a look at your pace setter, Jesus. Because he's run the race and he's running with you still by the power of the Spirit, and you keep in step. So consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's easy in this life when our eyes are not fixed properly to lose perspective, to lose hope, to grow weary, and to, and to lose heart. But when we have our gaze fixed properly, even though those times come and the temptation to do that and to ditch comes, when I see Jesus and I keep my eyes on Jesus is the only way that makes it through the storms for me. And that's what he's saying. And he goes on. He says, in your struggle, you have yet to suffer your own blood. You have not resisted yet to shedding your own blood. And have you forgotten the word of instruction that is coming to you as an encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son or his child? Right, Jesus, his road and his course marked out to him led to blood. And if it wasn't for that blood, we wouldn't be here today. But it's ironic as we look at the setting of when Hebrews is being written, these people who it's being written to, who had been starting to suffer some persecution, little did they know in the decade and the two decades to come, were actually going to be paying for it with their, with their life, like Jeff, Jeff talked about last week. But what about us? I, I know what rejection feels like. I know people speaking against me. And it hurts. But I'll tell you something, it doesn't hurt as much as that. And the question I have to live with someday, which I think we all have to live with, if at some time it had to come to that, could we continue and persevere? Or would we cave under the pressure? But if we have to be trained, which is this next section, we are trained to run. Then when the struggles come, we're more likely to overcome by the power of God than if we don't submit to his training. And that's what he's talking about here in verse 5. And it's interesting that he says that, have you forgot the encouragement that comes? This encouragement, that it's meant to be actually a positive thing. It might not sound like it, it might not feel like it, but it's meant for positive gain. 
And then the writer goes on and he, he, he quotes this verse from, from Proverbs and it says this, my son or my child, out of Proverbs 3, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you or disciplines you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. That really the discipline and when God is correcting us and, and, and coaching us very strongly in our lives, use a more positive word there, it's based out of love and for our best interest, not out of shame and not out of a, for a bad design. And so the writer is quoting this verse out of Proverbs 3, and then he starts to expand on it. Endure. Endure hardships as discipline. They were going through tough times, right? So much of tough times that they were willing to to throw it all away. And that's the warning of this book. Don't throw it away. Do not, do not throw it away. It's just to endure. Yes, it will be difficult. It will be painful. It might not make sense, but endure. It says God is treating you as children. For what children are not disciplined by their father or their mother? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. And as I think about that, I, I think about the... Uh, the training I know that it's been in my life, but I, I know I hear the story of my wife's testimony who, um, who didn't have many rules at home. And when she was 12, her parents got divorced and her mom thought that by loving my daughter, I will have no rules for you. But what Diana would take that to mean, it was my mom didn't love me because she didn't set guidelines and she didn't discipline me. And maybe a sense of illegitimacy, right? Certainly not a parent operating in the way that they should. And I know, we've had parents that disciplined us, and we didn't like it. But God disciplines us for our good. And it's actually a mark of of the family, him disciplining us versus not. And it's those disciplines in our lives that allow us to run the race that he's marked out for us. And sometimes we, we don't want to go to the gym that day with him. It says, moreover, we have all had human fathers and mothers who disciplined us and respected, we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? Right? A, a greater disciplinarian. And his purpose, again, is for life. It's for positive measure. And they disciplined us for a little while as best they saw fit, like, right, our earthly parents. I love this verse. As I've tried to discipline and raise my children, this has been my go-to verse in case I ever need, like, a get-out-of-jail-free card when they come to confront me with my parenting style. I'm like, hold on, I got a verse for you right here, the best I saw fit. You know I was following Jesus. I tried everything I could. It's the best I saw fit. You got any issues? Take it up with your heavenly father. (laughs) Because he and I already dealt with it. Right? But God, God disciplines us. He coaches us. He trains us. He equips us. He works us out very hard. 
so we can run the race he's called out for us to run. And in order that we may share in his holiness, right? This isn't a beat down. This isn't, I'm going to take you out to the woodshed. This isn't, we might have had some of those fathers. This is a, I love you. This is going to hurt you. <laughs> this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt us both. But, you, but it's to train you in righteousness and holiness. You see, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but, but painful. But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have trained by it. And I'll be honest, like the, the, the races that I do, like you saw in that, this is my, uh, I keep my bibs because I don't remember. But it's, it's very few times of miles that are in hours that I spend in a race versus how many hours and hours. Ask my wife. I was gone all day Friday. I'm still exhausted from Friday. 18 miles, 3,000 plus feet of elevation gain. I'm still about two pounds under what I was before I started that. I've been eating and drinking like crazy. Yeah, thank goodness for that apple fritter this morning. So hopefully that will... And I... And I, wanted, I had seven miles to go, and I was flat out. I was just exhausted. I had to get back to my car, <laughs> just out there in the mountains. And it, and it didn't seem pleasant. And I wish there was a shortcut. I'm like, maybe I could be like one of those, like, you know, mountain biker guys that get, you know, wheels and can sit down and cover the miles. Just kidding, you mountain bikers. But it didn't seem pleasant. The speed work I do, the hill work I do, the core work that I don't do. Doesn't seem pleasant at the time. But on race day, when I got that bib on, it's a whole different ball game. I run with, well, this watch is my running watch, and this is my ID bracelet in case um, I need to be identified <laughs> out there. But on the bottom of it, it says, no known allergies. And underneath that, it says, fight, race, faith, which comes from Paul writing to Timothy. It says that my life is being poured out like a drink offering, and my time for departure has come. For I have fought the fight, I have run the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown that the righteous judge will award to me, not only to me, but all who have longed for his appearing. For my life, I have that end goal in mind all the time, as best I can, both in my physical races, but also in my race of life. And some of the things that have had to be done in my life to sharpen me, to run that spiritual race— I wish there could have been a Cliff Notes version of that and not have to go through the full thick book. But God had other plans. But in the end, it produces, produces a harvest of righteousness. And then he shifts gears here. These two verses. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. So that's a discipline thing, like get strong and allow the coach to get you stronger. And this other verse is different, though. It says, Make level paths for your feet so the lame may walk and, and not be disabled, but rather healed. That, that's a decision of the path you take. 
It's not a decision that once you're on the path of God that he would, he would make it easier, but it's the fact that you choose the right road and the right track to run versus the wrong. And as we do make that decision to run the race that God has marked out for us, then there's another verse in Proverbs 3 that holds dear to my heart, that trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and that he will make your path straight. So we have faith, which is what we've been talking about in this book, and as we put that faith into practice, when we come up to things that are obstacles, and we have our faith in full gusto, then he takes care of those obstacles. He either gets them out of the way, gets us over them, through them, whatever it is. But that's his business, not mine. i got to stay faithful on the road and the marking of the, the course marked out for me. And that's what he calls us to do. Not to ditch the course and take the wrong road. And that's what he's saying here. And now we're going to sprint. It says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. You see, without holiness, no one will see God. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Right? As some of these people, and some of them were probably leaders, they were, they were ditching Jesus at the time where they were on the fence. By their decisions, they were affecting the community like a bitter root. And they were bringing disharmony to the group as opposed to all of us in this together. And that's what he's talking about here. Because what were they wrestling against? They were wrestling against chucking the grace of God aside and going back to the old race, which did not lead to holiness. And so he warns them here. And as much as he's encouraging in this chapter, he's warning over and over again, go the distance. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau who exchanged his birthright for a bowl of soup. Sold his inheritance as the oldest son, if you remember that story. He came in from the fields famished one day. We all know what that feels like. And his brother made a deal with him. Hey, I'll sell you this bowl of soup for your oldest child birthright. And Esau did it. He did it. He took a shortcut. He was focused on short-term, short-term gain and relief that brought him lifelong misery. That when he came to the end and he realized that he wanted what he gave away and he couldn't and he cried. And I don't know if there were tears of remorse. I think there were more tears of regret. Because he knew he blew it and his brother had the blessing and his father couldn't change it because his word was binding. We also know that God was orchestrating that and allowing that to happen as well. And, and how that sovereignty works out sometimes is the biggest mystery to me. But Esau should never have been in that position. He should have been trained. He should have been righteous. He should have been walking that he could, you know what? Mom, can you make me some soup? Or I'll go make some soup. Or we have some slaves, right? Some people who work for us, hired hands. I need some soup. That would be like me coming off the, the end of a race, and they have food there. I'm like, well, I'll give you all of my money for that one bowl of soup. No, you know what? I'm going to sit down and relax for a minute. I can get some soup. Short term. How we live our life, the decisions we make are out of temptation, and we decide, you know what? I'm going to go short term, not long term. 
and it comes back to bite us. It says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. There's two mountains he's talking about. The original mountain where Moses met and got the Ten Commandments and the law to a new mountain. And hear the difference between the two mountains. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that they begged no further words be spoken. Because they couldn't bear what was being commanded. And if even an animal touched the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Not even killing it with your hands because it became so defiled. It had to be killed with either arrows or, or, or rocks because it was unholy because it, it broke the word of God. So you haven't come to such a mountain. Moses even said, I'm trembling with fear. And then God calls him up to a meeting. Says, so that's not the mountain that we've come to. No. You. You have come to Mount Zion. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in the book of life in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all. To the spirits of the righteous, us, made perfect by the blood of the Lamb. To Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to a sprinkled blood that speaks a better, a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, Abel, when he was killed by his brother Cain, his blood spoke, and we talked about it in last chapter, but his blood spoke for revenge and, and, and judgment. And that blood was speaking that whole time, but when Jesus came and he shed his blood, his blood spoke better of reconciliation, of forgiveness, and of repentance, and a payment for sin. And that's the new blood. That's the new sacrifice. That's the, the heart of God who paid the price for us so we could run this race. Because there's no other way to qualify. There's no other way to get in via lottery or any other thing but by the person of Jesus Christ. And it cost him the ultimate entry fee. Right? To Jesus. On the one mountain, listen to these words. It can't be touched. It's burning with fire. Gloom. Storm. A trumpet blast. Frightening things. A voice that spoke words where you didn't even want to hear the word of God anymore. It's the living God. It says, no, that's not the mountain you've come to. A better mountain is here now. Mount Zion. Right? Heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, the city he is building for us. It's the same city that all the people in chapter 11 were waiting for, but didn't have entry to. But we do. Joyful assembly. Not doom and gloom. Like a party. Like the party of all parties is what's going on. It's like when I come close to the end of a, of a finish line of a race, like I can hear that, the jubilation of other people done with the race and, and the party going on. Like I can actually run faster because I know the party that is about to be mine. To God, the righteous judge who awards the crown of life 
not just a judge who allows people not into his presence. Remember, a judge does two things, right? He mets out payment, but he also gives reward. That's the judge that's waiting for us, right? The spirits of the righteous made perfect. There's people waiting for us. And Jesus in the center of all that, the mediator of a new covenant, that again, we all get to be there in joyful assembly because the blood of the lamb. And that's what he's writing about here. He said, this isn't the mountain. You're, you're running towards the right mountain. Why would you go back to this other one that brought no life? So he encourages them to run. And he finishes with these verses. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they didn't escape him who spoke and warn them from the earth, how much more will we, in turn, if we turn away from him warn, who warns us from heaven? Right? There's an eternal judgment that is going to take place. If they didn't turn from the earthly voice, what makes them think that they can get a response different if they turn from a heavenly voice? And at that time, he shook the earth and has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens as well. A final judgment that will come to pass. And the once more indicates the removing of what can be shaken. That is the created things and people, so that what cannot be shaken is what remains. It's his people. It's his redeemed. It's his creation that's been restored. But it requires faith to get in the race. And he calls us to run that with perseverance, the whole course, and suffer discipline as we have to. He says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, this should be our heart. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Right? In this life, he consu- that consuming fire in our lives, as we said, yes, I'll run, it refines us. But at some point when the race is over and everybody stands before the judge, there's a judgment there that they can change nothing about. And if we haven't started this race and we haven't effectively um, chosen this race by faith, and our name is not written in the book of life, then we are shaken out and fall, and we do not remain with him. And this is the judgment. This is the warning. This is the encouragement. As strong as this writer can write, that he's writing and kind of, and kind of finishes in this chapter. And the next week, we're actually going to look at chapter 13. It's kind of like the concluding comments. But this is the chapter here that kind of just cements and solidifies everything he's been writing since the beginning. And he's challenging his hearers, don't, don't give up. You've chosen the right race. Do not give up and don't spur my, my coaching. <laughs> and yes, it may be painful, but those tired muscles will produce. Father, I thank you for this moment. I thank you for this time. I thank you for the, the race that you've called us to run, and we do not run it alone. God, I thank you for Jesus, who is the author, perfecter, finisher of our faith, and is our pace setter. And when we have to slow down, you're right by us. You never leave our side. God, I thank you. I pray that my eyes and the eyes of my brothers and sisters here and those here would 
would keep our eyes fixed on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.